0: Snuff Production.
1: In this episode of The Briefing, the story of a renter who stood up to her greedy landlord by taking them to the tribunal.
2: I realised, okay, I'm going to have to take it to the tribunal. When we put in the application, everything changes in the mind of your property manager and landlord. That's when the mind game started to
1: begin. Yeah, so in many ways, Chantel won this fight, but in other ways, she lost. At 32 years old she never expected to have to move back in with her mum. That is a very interesting story from the rental crisis that's in the second half of this episode. First, today's big story is with Jan Fran. It's Monday, the 17th of July.
0: Hello, starting with some news for Djokovic fans. Uh, This has just happened as we record this. He has not won Wimbledon. That title has gone to Spain's Carlos Alcaraz. So Carlos is 20 years old. He defeated Novak Djokovic in five sets.
1: I started uh, playing tennis, watching, watching you. Uh, I mean, since, I, since I, I was born, you know, I... You, you. You say you just say that the 36 is the new 26, and you you make you make that happen.
0: Yeah, he's ruining Djokovic about the age gap there. One of mm. the widest age gaps in that match. Djokovic is 36 years old. Um, Carlos Alcaraz, as we said, is 20. After losing the first set 6-1, he managed to complete this major turnaround to win. And it's been called a match for the ages, lasting almost five hours, Tom.
1: Yeah, I think this was a really painful one for Djokovic, um, as proven by his smash racket in the fifth set. He also broke down in tears during the speech afterwards. He's got the most um, grand slams. He's still uh, ahead of Nadal there, but he wanted to equal Federer's record of eight wins at Wimbledon. And that didn't happen, and maybe it won't happen again. Who knows? He's, um, yeah, he's in his twilight, Djokovic, but still playing well. But this is incredible to have world number one so dominant at just 20 years old. And support for The Voice is continuing to fall away, according to the latest news poll. So 48% of voters are going to vote no, according to this poll. It's the lowest level since it was first proposed by the Albanese government, and it's going down, down, down. So it was 43% in May, in June, 48% saying they'll vote no in this latest poll here in July. And support is really falling amongst female voters, Jan.
0: Yeah, it is. The Yes campaign has um, got an increasingly uphill road ahead of them, unfortunately. Still no date set mm. for when this referendum will be held. Um, it comes as both sides are submitting their official campaign pamphlets to the Australian Electoral Commission for release. So this is something that sort of has to happen. Both sides design a pamphlet, they put it forward, it gets released that pamphlet was provided to the AAC by the No campaign on Friday, and the Yes group is submitting it tonight. Um, I suppose they're wanting to get the information to people as as much as they possibly can.
1: Yeah, I feel like locking in a date might help the Yes campaign, something solid to aim for. At the moment, it's just a debate that's sort of come and gone, waxed and waned throughout the whole year. It really started right back in January. Here we are in July. we don't know when it is and support just keeps ebbing away.
0: Yeah, look, we have been given a tentative uh, sort of vague time of October and I know that we report on polls uh, consistently and I think that that's generally a good thing to do. But just remember, October in in terms of a sort of a referendum and the swaying of public opinion is still a while away and things could change dramatically. (music) To Queensland now, and this has happened over the weekend. The big news is that the Liberals have retained the Queensland seat of Fadden in a by-election on the Gold Coast with a 2.5% swing to the LNP. So Dutton is putting this win down to cost-of-living pressures.
1: The Labor economic experiment is failing Australians. (laughs) Labor's energy experiment is failing Australians.
0: So, Cameron Coldwell has uh, now taken the seat, while the outgoing Minister Stuart Roberts' involvement in the robo-debt disaster, it didn't seem to have impacted the results all that much.
1: Yeah, I think there was an expectation that he'd had so much damage to his reputation, Stuart Robert, through this and a few other problems, and also his close relationship with Scott Morrison, but that didn't seem to affect voters, um... Yeah, the vote went up from a 60% victory at the last election to 62%. At the election before 2019, they won it by even more, 64%. So clearly, this is a very safe coalition seat in Queensland, uh, hovering around that 60% mark. Um, But the Liberals had had some really bad results in recent elections. At the Aston federal by-election, which was Alan Tudge's old seat, they got smashed. um, They lost the seat. Uh, they also got hammered at the New South Wales state election, so they'll be stoked to get a bit of a win.
0: Yeah, I know Labor's been trying to sort of yuck their yum by saying that anything less than a 4% margin is is nothing hugely worth celebrating, but it's probably important to recognise that the Labor Party is not doing too well in Queensland at the moment. There's 30 federal seats in the state of Queensland and Labor holds just five of those seats.
1: And unions have warned the Reserve Bank that unemployment is not the answer to driving down inflation. So, this comes because of old comments from the new incoming governor, Michelle Bullock. So, they made the big announcement on Friday that Philip Lowe uh, will not have his term extended at the RBA. So, Michelle Bullock, who was the deputy, will step up in September. And they found old comments of her saying that unemployment will have to go up to fix inflation. But... The ACTU, the Council of Trade Unions, is saying that the central bank should look at the drivers of inflation with fresh eyes.
0: Yeah, well, when the appointment of Michelle Bullock was announced, I think there were uh, a lot of people asking questions about whether the direction of the Reserve Bank would change, whether things would be different under Michelle compared to what they were under Lowe, particularly for Australians who are, you know, watching the interest rates mm. rising like, you know, with bated breath. It seems that line of unemployment needing to rise in order to curb inflation—that was something that Philip Lowe was criticised mm. by the ACTU for—and it seems to be a similar line that Michelle Bullock is um, is towing. So I don't know how much fresh eyes <laughs> the the ACTU is going to get with Bullock's appointment.
1: Yeah, I think this is um, a tricky thing. So yeah, I. I think it's a very good question. Like, how much different will it be under Michelle Bullock? Because they, both of them, Philip Lowe and Michelle Bullock, have essentially spent their whole careers at the Reserve Bank, um, so very similar backgrounds, uh, very similar understanding of the economy, and I guess it just gets harder once you're in the top job because you know there are human stories behind inflation as well. So. Unemployment now is 3.6 and those comments that they're pointing out said that unemployment would have to go up to 4.5 to help fix inflation. So taking that unemployment rate from 3.6 to 4.5, that means 140,000 human beings are out of work and doing it really tough.
0: That's the thing with economists, isn't it? So They're very good with stats on paper and mm. talking about which levers to pull to make which things go either up or down mm. in the economy. But as you say, you know, it's not a lever. It's hundreds of thousands of people who now no longer have an income that they relied on. What does that actually look like for them in their daily lives?
1: Mm, yeah, and this will be the, the really tricky thing. So um, what's going to be new in her term is that after they – Um, make the interest rate announcement um, eight times a year, she'll have to give a press conference. And so these are the dynamics that'll play out, Jan, where she's asked things that are sort of, I guess, decisions that are made on economic theory, but they affect human beings. So it's easy to have your comments kind of Picked apart and criticised very heavily. So I, I reckon that's going to be so hard giving those press conferences.
0: Well, good luck, Michelle Bullock, and good luck, Australia.
1: And good luck to renters. We'll catch you later, Jan. About to get into this really interesting story of a renter, Chantel Smith, doing it really tough in Sydney. This is the second episode we're doing on the rental crisis. The anecdotal horror stories are just flooding in. There's massive queues for inspections, long searches for rentals, there's mould, dodgy bathrooms and kitchens, and horrifying rent increases for existing tenants. Now, when you look at the data, um, which gives the broader picture, even though it's a slight lag on the real world, you do get a very clear picture of the problem. So, looking at last quarter's ABS Rental Insights report, you can see that vacancy rates are very low. So, in Sydney and Melbourne, um, they've fallen to 2%, which is in line with their long-term average. So, those cities have always been really tight and really hard to get affordable rentals. The other capitals are even tighter. So, Brisbane, Perth and Hobart, they're doing it really tough. Vacancy rates are below 1%. And so, then when you look at median weekly rents, it's no surprise that Tassie, and WA rents have spiked really hard. So Tassie rents are up 40% since mid-2019, and WA is up nearly 30%. Sydney's still the most expensive rental market, which is where Chantelle Schmidt's story is set. She's a 32-year-old writer. She writes for a number of publications, including Pedestrian. And she's also been sharing her painful rental journey on TikTok, and people are eating it up. Chantelle, thank you for joining us here on The Briefing. Take us back to the start of this painful journey.
2: Began back in February of this year. So we received a three hundred and fifty dollar weekly increase. And that would take us from nine fifty a week to thirteen hundred a week.
1: Wow. Nine fifty to thirteen hundred in one hit. And this is split across three bedrooms. So more than hundred dollars a week increase per bedroom.
2: I know, it's a lot. It was very confronting at the time, such a considerable amount. We obviously tried to negotiate straight away. We used a comparable property in the Redfern area. We were told it was non-negotiable.
1: Okay, so you're like, I'm going to do the right thing here. I'm going to fight for my rights. I'm going to go to the tribunal. What was that like? How time-consuming was it? How did it work? Honestly, it's
2: a really soul-crushing experience. (laughs) Um, We were told it was non-negotiable. Then I realised, okay, if I want to try and figure something out with this rent increase, I'm going to have to take it to the tribunal. I'd kind of heard mixed reviews. It's easy or like, oh, it's going to be really exhausting, blah, blah, blah. One way to figure it out, right? Mm. So then we put in the application. When we put in the application, everything changes in the mind of your property manager and landlord. That's when the mind game started to begin for me. So once we put in the NCAT application, now it is negotiable. It was like literally a week earlier we were told it was non-negotiable. Okay,
1: so you're gaining the upper hand slightly.
2: I mean, it kind of <laughs> felt like that in a way, you know, like when they came to us and they said, oh, actually, now the landlord's willing to look at all of these issues in the house that you've outlined in NCART because we thought may as well. If we're going to put a submission into NCAR, let's talk about all of these issues we've been dealing with as well. And they're going to take $50 off the $350 okay. increase.
1: Okay, so... This is before the tribunal even rules that the landlord or the real estate agent is negotiating Oh downwards. yeah, This okay. is February. This is okay. months ago. This is okay. days
2: after we put in the NCA application. Now, now they're coming to the party and they want to have discussions about these things. So the handyman comes in, starts working on these things and um, you know, this $50 off is on the table now. So now we're looking at $300 and still at over 30% of a mm. rental increase. Mm. So those conversations kept happening right up until hours before... The tribunal hearing. So the first tribunal hearing that you have is a conciliation, like a fifteen minutes in a room with a mediator, a tribunal member. Okay. That never happened for us because I had COVID. It was a virtual hearing. The hearing got adjourned. But hours before, now we're told you can get a hundred dollars off this rent increase.
1: Okay, so we're down from thirteen hundred to twelve hundred.
2: Yes, and guess what the reason is? What? Because she doesn't want to travel in the horrible weather. It was raining
1: that day. Hmm. So flippant.
2: Well, what is the market if you are able to change the market based on weather? <laughs> Honestly, it was such a kick in the teeth.
1: Okay, so you get to 1200 before the scheduled hearing, which doesn't happen. Mm. Then what?
2: Then, because that got adjourned, you have to wait another two months until uh, the next hearing.
1: Are you still paying your 900 at this point or are you up at the new, the new rate? I'm so glad you asked because this was
2: <laughs> the most... Um, Confronting part of it all was when we had to wait the two months and during that time was when the rent increase was to take effect. So we got the 60 days notice, obviously, way back in Feb. Mm. Then that date rolls around and we speak to the property manager and just say, like, obviously, we're still waiting on the hearing, so just letting you know we're aware that the increase is going to take effect. She says, that doesn't make a difference. You have to pay it. Mm. If they then decide that your rent increase is excessive then we can figure it out from there, e.g. they'll back pay it. I think it was a month that we were paying that increase for. Yeah, it was a lot.
1: You moved out at some point. What happened?
2: (laughs) So then the tribunal happened. It was three months, I think, at that point after the actual rent increase itself. The tribunal happened, depending on which way you look at it. Some people say it swung in the landlord's favour. Some people will say I won, whatever. But the end result was that the rent increase changed from 350 to 300 So less than what we were originally, but also more than what the landlord had negotiated with us up until that point to avoid the tribunal altogether. And then we also got $75 off a week for the year before the tribunal because of the issues that we dealt with in the house, which okay. amounted to 3900
1: So that is a win.
2: I think so. Unfortunately... In the way that the system works at the moment, especially in New South Wales, you are going to face an eviction notice if you take your property manager or the landlord to the tribunal. So, we were sitting there going, okay, we can take the 1100 but we probably get evicted tomorrow. What success story really is this?
1: Yeah, and you haven't got the compensation payment. So, you decide on the compensation and then just to get out.
2: Mm, Yeah, exactly, exactly. And look, um, the tribunal was quite some time ago now and we have not seen that compensation payment No.
1: Seriously. But the tribunal ordered that they pay it?
2: Well, yeah, yeah. You get like, you know, you get this outcome and it says that, you know, this has to be paid and it can either go into the nominated account or that it can be rent credit. Obviously we chose the notice to vacate, so we couldn't have it as a rent credit.
1: Well, the real kicker was that the place next door was on the market for 1200
2: yeah, so and they couldn't
1: even rent it out.
2: Exactly, exactly. So th- for so they're two being, months,
1: they are being greedy and missing the market.
2: One hundred percent, and they used that as a comparable property within the tribunal hearing. And I am very, very convinced that the reason that the tribunal member came to the decision that the rent was still worth a three hundred dollar increase was because of the price of next door, this identical property in Redfern. So it was like, okay, yeah. they've they've bloody used this as a way to get the rent increase that they want and they can't even lease the bloody thing. And then days later, it's 1200 It spells it out, right? Like I don't need to spell it out in terms of what's going on here. They've just tried their luck, saw what they could get away with and they couldn't get away with it.
1: It's just so infuriating because they're completely disrupting your life.
2: Yeah. Meanwhile, I'm moving back home with mum. Okay.
1: Underneath all of the sort of to and froing and the arguing about the money and the condition of the property is like, your life as a human being. How did all this make you feel?
2: It made me feel like a piece of shit. Honestly, like the biggest takeaway from me throughout this this whole experience is just how humans treat one another and like how inconsiderate property managers and landlords can be when looking at people as transactions because I'm very aware that not all landlords and property managers are like this, Mm. right? This is a sample of an industry. There are too many people that are taking advantage of people in vulnerable positions right now. Every other day you see a leaked email from a property manager saying something threatening, I guess, to their, to their tenants or making them feel even more powerless than they already do in a really unfair power dynamic, mm. you know, that is landlord versus tenant. So for me, just the mind games, the manipulation, the, the gaslighting of this entire situation has been really disheartening for me.
1: So that was Chantel Schmidt. And we do have some updates on her story. So since we recorded that interview, she's finally received that compensation payment. So that is awesome. Plus, she's had some house sitting options come up. So she's not spending as much time back at home with her dear mother as she expected. I wanted to go broader on this for a moment before we finish, particularly the part about moving home. Uh, Mark McCrindle is the founder of McCrindle Research. He's looked at the data on the impact of the rental market on young renters. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. Is there any data or qualitative research to show that Chantel's experience of having to move home after years in the rental market is a common one?
3: Yeah, there is. There's a lot more of this going on. We know that because household size has been increasing over recent years. And that's not because of more children being born per household as much as it is because children are either staying at home later in life or indeed returning back to that family abode. Uh, And there's a big rise in the multi-generational household. So, we're returning back to more generations under the one roof.
1: So what's the impact of this on people's lives? Because for many people, including Chantel, this certainly was not the plan.
3: Yeah, that's right. And people can feel a bit of a social stigma around it if they have to say, you know, they're back with their parents. Mind you, it's a pretty widespread Occurrence and many of the parents are happy with it, happy to keep that connection with their children a bit longer. And many of the parents, of course, still have that big home. They they were the empty nesters; they didn't downsize, so they're able to to accommodate those adult children. But there can be a sense that, oh, well, you know, as an individual, I've failed to launch. I haven't mm. carved out my own financial independent pathway. Uh, but obviously, in these circumstances, yes. unprecedented as they are, it's very understandable. So,
1: what are the deeper changes happening in society here, Mark, as a result of these economic conditions, the tight rental market, the decreasing affordability to actually buy your own home, which means people are doing it at a later age. How is this all changing us as a society?
3: Well, the parental approach has totally changed. If we go back a few generations, parents raise their children, in a sense, set them free, and they conserve their money and then help their children through their estate, you know, through their will, and that money was received. Perhaps the uh, money from that estate or that home divided up amongst the children when those children, after their parents died, were probably in their fifties or, or, or older. That's all changed now with parents helping their children while their children really are, are younger and needing it at the start of their economic life. Uh, perhaps using up some of their own money, some of their own retirement savings, as they assist their children get that economic foothold in, um, in that young adult life stage.
1: Well, that's all well and good for people that have parents that can pass something on or assist earlier. But once again, it seems like it's the more vulnerable people in our society, um, young people or people less well off financially or w- with parents that are less well off that are, again, taking the impact of these conditions.
3: That's right. And, you know, if, if a parent has a four bedroom empty nest home, they've got the space for those adult children to return. And again, it happens at the most financially pinched point in life. So sometimes those adult children have just started their own uh, family and so they've got youngsters. Um, so they've got the space for it. It's those that perhaps have that. Uh, suboptimal accommodation. Maybe they're in a terrace or a townhouse or an apartment themselves and there's just not that space for the children and that's where it gets pretty challenging. Not only because there's not the space, but that does start to impact on on some of the relationships when everyone is pretty crowded under that one roof.
1: So that was Mark McCrindle. And sadly, I can't see any way these problems are going to improve in the short term. We have record migration including international students, so that's driving demand in the rental market. And then on the supply side, it's going nowhere. Um, particularly in this high interest rate environment, developers' borrowing costs have gone up and people aren't building new apartments. So this rental market is in a slow-motion car crash and as we've mentioned before, it's the most vulnerable people, young people and those well off financially Then end up taking all of the impact.
2: Listener.